Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, friends. Welcome to OnScript. This is Amy Brown-Hughes, a co-host for the podcast with Matt Lynch, Matt Bates, Aaron Heim, Drew Johnson, and Chris Tilling. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Josh McNall, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Zondervan Academic kindly sent me Josh's book, and just like anyone, getting a book in the mail is like Christmas every time I go to my mailbox. I opened it and immediately reached out to Josh because it's high time we have a conversation about atonement. Some of you are thinking, yes, I love talking about atonement. Others of you are moaning about yet another take on what the atonement is that complicates rather than clarifies, yet another argument about which theory is better, etc. But my friends, this is not going to be one of those conversations. Today we're going to move toward, in Josh's words, reintegration. We're going to spend time zooming in for the beautiful details and zooming out on the beautiful picture in our discussion of his recent book, The Mosaic of Atonement, An Integrated Approach to Christ's Work, published with Zondervan Academic in 2019. I enjoyed this book immensely. Welcome, Josh. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. Um, There are various disciplines within theology, and I've been, as we've been going through Uh, the theology stream of this podcast have been introducing our listeners to various versions. So there's historical, systematic, constructive, analytical, practical, and you are a pastoral theologian. Could you start us off today by talking about pastoral theology as a branch of practical theology and what your journey into pastoral theology looked like? Sure. Um, You know, for starters, I guess I'm still figuring out what it looks like. Uh, They've just recently changed my title to... um, pastoral theology. And I, but I think the real reason is uh, I'm at a, at a university uh, that is training up ministers, uh, ministers, missionaries, um, men and women who feel called to church leadership and pastoral ministry. And so part of the reason for um, that focus of pastoral theology is, is a, a real deep belief that the academy, especially with regard to theology and biblical studies and things like that, is meant to serve the church. And and so um, my goal is not to just um, get wrapped up in sort of arcane debates or controversies, but to serve the church. And so pastoral theology is in part a reminder for me that that's my calling. And uh, a second reason is that I uh, I do serve the church in uh, primarily through preaching. I, I'm on staff at a local congregation as the associate teaching pastor, and I do a fair bit of uh, preaching for the university and chapel services and uh, traveling to, to churches. So, so that would be my answer. Uh, just you know, first that I, I want to serve the church with theology um, to show the church that theology matters and to remind the academy that the church matters. And, uh, and to kind of have a foot in both of those worlds. Well, it's, it's, it's an interesting path to walk, right? Where um, as theologians, we are responsible for sort of the academic project of theology that has been going on for a really long time. Um, but we can't ignore the connection it has to the church, um, sort of whatever stripe of theology that we are. And I think it's interesting that you said, oh, you know, not the arcane debates, but then you, you wrote a book about atonement, <laughs> which maybe isn't arcane in the sense, but it is definitely contentious and people have very strong opinions about this. And what's fascinating about it is that these strong opinions can be felt all the way down to lay people. Uh, which is really interesting for this because you know, some lay people, you know, you talk about the Trinity and they just sort of go, ah, I don't know, uh, right? But atonement, if you you might not use that word, but if you start explaining it a little bit, they'll go, no, 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 that's not what salvation is. No, 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 <laughs> right? Um, so there's a sense too in which there this topic, I can see why you would choose it, right? Um, so why don't you talk about that a little bit? Why write a book on the atonement? Why delve into this? conversation as a pastoral theologian? 
Sure. Um, well, after I finished my, my PhD, uh, which was more on the Trinity and, and historical theology, I was asked to teach a graduate course on atonement. And so I thought, you know, so I'm doing all this research. Uh, I, I might as well kind of think through my own thoughts on this and, and, and write something. And so that's how the project started. Um, but speaking to sort of pastoral theology, I remember having a conversation, I think I mentioned this in the book, with my with my daughter Lucy, who the book is dedicated to. And she's eight right now, but I think she was maybe six, five or six, when this conversation happened. And we were just sort of laying in bed uh, after praying uh, to, you know, putting her down for the night. And she asked me this question. She said, you know, Dad, how does Jesus save us by dying on the cross? Um, and she was really confused because... You know, she's known people, family members who've died um, and even died young. And that was not um, good news. You know, um, death, she knows that death is not a, a good thing. Um, and so she was just really confused that, okay, here we are praying about, you know, thank you, Jesus, for uh, dying on the cross for our sins and for rising again and for saving us. And, and so it was a really like, basic question, okay, so how is the cross good news, and how is it salvific, given that it's such a horrible, um, painful, uh, shameful uh, way to die? And so that's the most basic question, I think, for atonement theology is like, okay, can you help me sort through that? And that was coming from a six-year-old, but it comes in different ways from every Christian, I think, at some point. Man, if all of us theologians could be around children on a regular basis, maybe we'd be better theologians, right? Uh, wow, what a! I'm sure at that point at night you just wanted her to go to bed, but in that moment you were warring within yourself <laughs> of how to get her to go to bed, but also what do I do with this question? I don't want to screw it up. Um, so let's get into your book. Uh, one thing I really appreciated about it is that you don't breeze over methodology, but you also don't make it so like technical <laughs> that I'm, I have to look up like what methods you're using and that kind of thing. And but you don't breeze over it either yours or that of others. You you are very hospitable um, in how you. Talk about other scholars, ones that you are having uh, really interesting back and forth with, maybe have uh, pretty distinct differences from, uh, but you don't breeze over that. You run right right toward it. You explore it. You work through it. And I normally don't ask someone at the outset to explain a footnote uh, right off the bat. You know, we save that for later in the podcast where you know the the stalwart few are still listening. Uh, but I appreciate your short but informative explanation of the spectrum of words used to describe approaches to the doctrine of atonement uh, at the very beginning in your introduction. Themes, metaphors, models, theories, you give quite a list. Um, and I, and I want to start here because I do think that in our conversations as theologians about this, we do use different words almost interchangeably. Um, but we need to interrogate that a little bit more, which is kind of what you're getting at. Could you explain where you land on the spectrum and why? Sure. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that comes up is what do we call these different approaches to exploring and understanding Christ's work? You know, and so some words that are thrown around are images, themes, metaphors, motifs, models, and then maybe the most common one, theories, you know, theories of atonement. And one of the things I think it's important to remember um, as theologians is that words connote as well as denote, and they bring different feelings and, and thoughts to mind for different people. And so I think it's important to differentiate um, between these terms a little bit. Um, and so the word theory, we're talking about a theory of atonement, has a kind of scientific connotation, a sort of rational connotation. Um, like if you think about the theory of relativity or something like that. And for me, it's, it's, it's basically saying that we have this um, full-orbed understanding of how it works, right? The atonement. 
And I don't quite think that that's the case. I think that we need to safeguard mystery because we don't fully understand. We, we could never fully wrap our minds around um, Christ's saving work. But at the same time, we want to value coherence in, in thoughtful inquiry as well. And so for me, on the far end of the spectrum, there's theories that maybe purport to know a little bit more than we actually do know. Um, and then on the opposite end, there's ideas like, or there's words like images and themes, you know, so maybe sacrifice is a, is a metaphor or a theme, but it hasn't, at least by itself, offered a little bit more of an explanation as to how that works, right? And so the word I've landed on that I use probably most in the book is the word model. So models of atonement. Um, and so we could talk about um, the moral influence model. We could talk about Irenaeus's use of recapitulation as a model. And so, um, or uh, vicarious judgment or penal substitution as models. And a model has explanatory value. It offers some explanation as to how this works, how, the, how Christ saves us, but it also recognizes the distance between our model and the thing itself, the act of um, Christ's work itself. And so the, the sort of the analogy I use is I used to play with model airplanes when I was a little kid, and I would put together these model fighter jets, and they taught me a lot about the real thing, but there's also this very obvious uh, reality that they weren't the real thing. You know, they can't fly around, they can't uh, break the sound barrier. And I feel like as theologians, that's an important thing to keep in mind, that we want to have coherence and rational inquiry, but we also have to safeguard and remember that our models are not the thing itself. And we don't, and we never could uh, fully capture or understand um, something like uh, Christ's saving work in a in a book or in our theologies. And that leads me to my next question here about um, how to talk about these models together. Because you're right with with theories, there's this sense of um, of they're kind of self enclosed where they. Um, like you said, purport to say maybe more, or at least it indicates that it could, they could purport to say more than they possibly could. And as you know, uh, astutely and others have as well, there's a sense of competition between theories. Like how many theories can you have that are all true at the same time? <laughs> right. Um, and, and it also means that if you can't really have part of a theory work with another part of a theory. So I think you're, I think you're right to, to really push on our use of that term. And I think a lot of us, uh, especially in teaching, use it for sake of, of sort of clarity or to separate things out for students. So I will say um, that, that your book helped me um, be a little less lazy as a theologian <laughs> and as a professor. Um, to I already uh, we'll talk a little bit about some of the other approaches I've heard. Um, so I already pushed on some of those, but just in my language with students. So fundamental to your approach is that all of the pieces, models, images, etc., of atonement do fit together. And not only do they fit together, but that they belong together. Uh, you draw from Jeremy Treat's The Crucified King for your language of reduction versus relativism here. So with atonement, the problem with other treatments of, of atonement has been either the sliding into the reductionism of a defensive hierarchy, that competitive, like between theories, uh, where they're seen as uh, reactive to each other and one inevitably ends up on top as the best. And other ones are kind of like supporting actors in, you know, and they can be kind of helpful at times. So no one ever really dismisses a theory completely, except for maybe moral influence, which we'll come back to. Uh, the other slide on the other end from reductionism is relativism, where atonement is just one big lovely soup and all of them are right to some extent. Uh, but they're still self-enclosed. You can still talk about them discreetly. But 
you can't there's not really a sense of how they work together uh, if they're all in this one big soup. So can you talk first about how we end up sliding into reductionism or relativism? And then what are the consequences that follow from that? Well, you're right. I mean, I do think those are the two extremes in atonement doctrine. One I call a defensive hierarchy, where we're trying to argue about which model or theory is best or um, at the exclusion of others. And the other is this sort of disconnected, relativistic, disconnected plurality. I think one of the ways we slide into one of those two extremes is by abandoning a posture of worship in contemplation in favor of uh, polemic or tribalism or um, just more kind of acrimonious forms of uh, theology. You know, my tradition's better than yours and your, you know. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with um, thinking through the, the truth value of particular claims and trying to sort out the true from the false and all of that. But I think one of the one of the things that leads us toward these extremes is abandoning a posture of, of worship and contemplation in favor of um, tribalism or polemic. And, and that sometimes leads toward, especially the the reductionistic end of the spectrum, this sort of defensive hierarchy, uh, one ring or one model to rule them all sort of approach. Uh, and. And I'm trying to move past that in in this book. Yeah. Well, and to be and to be fair, right? Like, I mean, we use the term tribalism oftentimes negatively, right? But it's not always negative, um, uh, especially when we're talking about right, like native peoples. Um, but the so there is a sense in which traditions do have contributions here that they do protect. Um, and, and there's a sense of, of identity that goes with that, ways of uh, thinking about salvation. Um, and so this does end up being, and as I mentioned with lay people, um, having reactions when you start to explain this. Um, and I think uh, that there's a, there's a sense of how to kind of pastorally walk through that, right? Um, and, and how our theology can, can give us ways to think about that. And I think you're right about worship. And I'm just going to read a section. Uh, I pulled a quote from, uh, this section, uh, which you basically said, but here, I think it's just, it wraps it up really nicely. You write that at the end of the day, the atonement is not a puzzle to be solved. Really appreciated that. Not, nor is it a problem to be figured out or a riddle that demands human cleverness. While the cross will always appear as folly by the world's standards, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, the Apostle Paul goes on to marvel that God's perceived weakness and foolishness is in truth both strong and wise when viewed through eyes of faith. The proper response to atonement is not a confident attempt to figure it out. The proper response is worship. So I really appreciated that approach because I think that... um, this really easily devolves into um, my my way is is you know better than yours and that kind of thing and and there's even um, fr- like friendly competition and you mentioned uh, a few uh, different ways uh, um, of uh, images that people have used to explain uh, atonement theories especially on the relativistic side like I I just use soup <laughs> um, but you you talk about uh, the kaleidoscope. Um, I, McKnight's golf bag was a new one for me. Um, and, and I will admit to having one of my own. I, uh, you know, that image of, from Pink Floyd's, uh, dark side of the moon, like the, the prism, the triangle. <laughs> uh, so I used, I was like, well, kaleidoscope is awful close to prism. So <laughs> you made me think about my own approach. So onto your approach. Let's, let's, let's get here. Give us the pitch here. Your, your bringing to the table this image of mosaic of atonement, what does that look like? Well, for me, the Bible gives us a way of viewing different parts of a whole that recognizes their differences, but also doesn't try to pit them against each other. And it's the metaphor of the body of Christ. And Paul talks about how one part of the body shouldn't look at another part and say, I don't have need of you, right? Or I'm, you know, and so... 
the metaphor that I use is one of a mosaic, because in a mosaic you can see the individual pieces, right? It's not like a photograph where the pixels are so small that they're invisible, right? But in a mosaic, you also can see this bigger holistic image that is really the point more than any one piece. And so for me, the mosaic is a mosaic of Christ. And uh, the pieces are, that I use, these sort of oversized pieces are feet, heart, head, and hands. And each one of those pieces, feet, heart, head, hands, um, stands for a different model of atonement. Uh, and so the feet as sort of this foundational piece I use to speak of this Irenaean model, uh, Irenaean interpretation of recapitulation. Um, and then the heart uh, I use to speak about uh, both penal substitution and vicarious judgment, that Christ, um, that, that he is uh, judged in the place of sinful humanity. The head uh, I use to speak about uh, Christus Victor, the triumph uh, of atonement. And then the hands, both beckoning us uh, to imitate Christ, to follow, and also restraining some of our sinful impulses, I use to talk about two different versions of moral influence, um, the moral influence model. And so by using the body metaphor, I'm trying to say that there is a relationship between the pieces and it's not just that we scatter them all out on the table and uh, say that they're all important. And it's also not that we just pick one and say, this is my favorite, right? That we need to see how they fit together and how they support one another in the same way that Paul's body metaphor for the body of Christ. We need um, all of the members of that body uh, in harmony and in a certain relation. And so that's the metaphor, the mosaic of atonement and uh, using the the body of Christ as a kind of um, conceptual metaphor there. Yeah. And you you do spend a good amount of time in each section because you do a big section on each uh you know feet, heart, head, hands. Um you spend a lot of time actually working through how these pieces fit together and I I will confess to being several times like surprised at how well they work together um, and what the, the just the different uh, things that you brought forth. So uh, let's look at just maybe a question on each one of these sections or so. So when you were researching recapitulation, um, and of course, as an early Christian historical theologian, I was like, woohoo, Irenaeus, uh, which you identify this as the feet of the mosaic. What was a new connection or idea that you encountered that helped the colors of this particular section of the mosaic stand out? Yeah, for me, I mean, I, I love Irenaeus, and he figured prominently in my, in my doctoral research. And um, I think he had, he's been neglected at certain points in church history, uh, probably for a variety of reasons. But with regard to recapitulation, I think one of the things that, that Irenaeus argues that's really helpful is that Adam uh, was fashioned in the image or after the pattern of the incarnate Christ. And so the Imago Dei is rightly understood as the Imago Christi, um, which is a little different than the view that we get later with Augustine, where the Imago Dei is, is the Imago Trinitatis, right? Um, and so I think what Irenaeus does with recapitulation is he provides a little bit of an explanatory framework to help us understand how Christ can act on behalf of all humanity as the new and true Adam. Um, and he, he can do that because even Adam was fashioned after the pattern of the Christ. And in the scriptures, the head um, can act on behalf of the whole. And so as the true human, as the archetypal human, Jesus can act on behalf of all humanity. It, just as Adam's sin has affected you know, the cosmos itself and all humanity, Christ's uh, triumph and his faithfulness echoes, echoes down for all humanity. And so for me, that insight about the Imago Dei as the Imago Christi and this understanding of how 
um, the head of the human family can act for the whole that Irenaeus has is, is super helpful, not just for recapitulation, but also for dealing with some real worries or potential problems when we move on to talk about uh, Christ's um, sort of penal substitution or vicarious judgment, that that can help solve some some real problems that exist or some real questions that exist for uh, for that model. And one more on the recapitulation section. For me, uh, a particular section I appreciated, and but at the outset went, oh, this is interesting. Why is this here? Uh, was the question on like Adam, historical Adam, not historical Adam, and then the problematic ways Christians have engaged with science. And you, and I will admit that you go into conversations like in scientific theory and like monogenesis and all these different things. I was, I, I will confess to not knowing a lot about. Uh, so I learned a lot in this section, but you talk about uh, the problematic ways Christians have engaged with science through misrepresentation, not using relevant material, um, and you know, and just kind of going about our merry way. Could you talk about this more? Like, what was the discussion and why it matters to talking about this? You know, re- very ancient perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember getting an email from my. Um, former doctoral supervisor who said, you know, why are you wading into this debate? You know, are you going to get yourself in trouble? I mean, we don't, we don't typically think of like questions of the historical Adam or science and all that in a, in a book on atonement, you know, but it does matter, especially for recapitulation because recapitulation has to do with Christ as um, the new and true Adam and how he stands in this sort of relationship with Adam in terms of um, his vocation. And so uh, Paul specifically brings together Christ and Adam to talk about uh, sin and the fall, but also to talk about atonement. And so it's a conversation that, that matters for atonement, even though the, it maybe doesn't seem apparent at first. And so um, the question that, that emerges now because of genetic and genomic science is, can we even speak of uh, the historical Adam as the father of all humanity, the historical Adam and Eve as the parents of, you know, and so, or is that basically just a really sort of simple-minded, outmoded uh, way of thinking? And so it's a, it's a chapter on what Christians should do with that debate about the historical Adam, but specifically on the topic of atonement and not just exclusively science and scripture um, and things like that. One of my favorite quotes uh, that I found researching is from G.K. Chesterton. And he says that the doctrine of the fall is the most encouraging view of life because it says, the fall says, that we've misused a good world rather than simply being trapped inside a bad one. And so I do think it's important to hold on to this idea of a fall from primal goodness, um, and, and that that's really important for our view of God, that God isn't the author of evil, he isn't the author of, of sin. But I don't think that means that we need to, again, rush to the opposite extreme right. and, uh, and basically view science as the enemy um, or adopt a sort of dismissive, um, combative view towards well-tested, carefully gathered scientific data. Uh, mm-hmm. And so kind of like a lot of elements in this book, I'm trying to just steer a little bit of a middle course between two extremes. Um, on one extreme, you might have the sort of dismissive scientism of the new atheists, and on the other, the sort of dismissive fideism of um, especially forms of young earth creationism. And yeah. to to say there's really a better way, there's another way to think about these questions that avoids both of those extremes. So let's move on to penal substitution, right? So you identify this model, perhaps surprisingly for some, uh, I will admit to being like, oh, interesting, uh, as the beating heart of the mosaic. What's your response to those who say penal substitution is the heart? 
really? Uh, can you explain why you see it this way and address why some might be taken aback by this description? I mean, y- you obviously know this, right? Because you literally have a chapter about this called Right But Repulsive? Question <laughs> mark. Well, uh, speaking of connotations for words or phrases, uh, penal sub is a triggering um, phrase or, or concept for a lot of Christians. Um, and on the one hand, it's been elevated in certain sort of conservative, especially reformed circles, as the ultimate or even the only model of atonement, the first and best, right? And I think that's really unfortunate. Um, it, on the other hand, it's been seen as just blatantly abusive and evil and unbiblical and terrible by another segment of the church. And so one of the things I wrestled with in part two of the book is what to call this heart, right? Um, and so the, the title of part two is The Heart, Penal Substitution, and Vicarious Judgment. Um, and ultimately, I couldn't use that longer sentence every time I spoke about it because it gets really wordy. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that there is an incorporative um, element to Christ's uh, penalty bearing. Christ, uh, Paul can say, for instance, that he's been crucified with Christ, that we're bound up in and with Christ, right? Um, so it's not just substitution. There's also an incorporative or a union thing going on there. But I think it's also an inescapable part of the biblical witness to say there is an element of substitution and penalty bearing too. Um, that when it comes to agency and experience, Christ really is our substitute in bearing um, the penalty for sin, but not in a way, uh, this sort of crass, abusive way, where you picture this sort of angry father um, punishing an innocent victim, you know. Um, I think those are really unbiblical construals of penal substitution. And unfortunately, that model, I think, has suffered as much from its proponents as from its detractors. And there are some folks who have not really done us any favors um, in their affirmations of penal substitution because they've um, stated it in ways that are not biblical or not careful. And and that can lead to this idea that it's an abusive or um, unchristian sort of pagan view um, and, and so, again, I think you have to, I think it's there in the scriptures, but we need to nuance what we mean by penal substitution or vicarious judgment uh, language. I appreciated your really careful uh, biblical work here and looking at some of those themes, like really diving into, uh, I mentioned that right but repulsive chapter, like looking at sacrifice and just blood, right? And especially people in, um, who don't spend a lot of time around blood and you know, working with animals or we don't know where our food comes from. Like people who die are like, they don't die, you know, in our homes necessarily. And we don't, uh, we're just very sort of distant from a lot of these things. And I think there's a sense of, of, um, of distance there that caused some issues, but you do, um, you really work through the text really beautifully to kind of help us see, um, the context in a way that won't allow us to kind of bring our, ew, that's gross or whatever to the text and, but to let it sort of be there. Uh, let, I want to ask a question here about, um, some of this, uh, connection that you do between these models. So I particularly enjoyed your treatment of um, penal non-transference. I'll ask you to define that uh, via recapitulation. It's a very theological phrase. Uh, Would you explain this connection? I think it's a good example of the work you do bringing these models to co-inhere. Yeah, well, I mean, first off, I guess that doesn't sound very much like a pastoral theologian. There's a lot of uh, jargon there. <laughs> so I think one of the biggest problems or questions or challenges for the idea that Christ bears um, the penalty for human sin on our behalf is is penal non-transference, or it's sometimes called the justice worry, the justice worry. And that is, how in the world can an innocent person justly bear 
the punishment or the or even the guilt uh, for the guilty, right? We would never call a judge a just judge if that judge sentenced an innocent person to be punished on behalf of a guilty person. I mean, we would say that that is the very definition of injustice, right? And so that's one of the real challenges for, for penal substitution is to think through how that can happen. How can Christ bear the penalty for the guilty? Um, and how can that be just? And so I think this is where Irenaeus helps us a little bit, because the idea for him is that the head is bound up mysteriously with the whole, and the head can act on behalf of the whole. Um, and so recapitulation, at least as Irenaeus views, us, views it, allows us to, to say that Christ um, can act on behalf of his people because he is in some sense uh, bound up with them as their head. Um, and we can't maybe fully wrap our minds around how that works, but his understanding of the Imago Dei as the Imago Christi helps to kind of think through how it is that Christ could bear the penalty on behalf of his people. And I think it cuts against modern individualism um, that sees people as inherently separate, right? And I think that's an area where we need um, to recapture sort of an ancient perspective that um, that is really important to see the people of God as bound up with Christ as our head, so that he can act on behalf of the whole, even in terms of bearing um, the penalty. Can we talk about Satan for a moment? Sure. Uh, so, uh, as a Pentecostal, I'm I'm used to a general stance against the excessive demythologizing of Satan that you note, um, but also an ever so precarious balance right over the edge or on the edge into what you call excessive fascination. Dealt with that on more than one occasion. Um, and this is another example of you delving into a debate that somebody probably went, now why are you doing this again? Like a science. And you're like, let's talk about Satan. So can you give us a sense of why theologians need to talk about Satan uh, better for the sake of understanding the work of Christ. It kind of seems important. Um, also, it seems to me that this will go a long way towards your stated goal, and I love this, of wanting to, quote, make Christus Victor strange again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so um, Satan. I think, you know, historic, one reason to talk about Satan is because it's a historic part of the atonement discussion going all the way back to the church fathers and all the way back to scripture itself, that Christ has triumphed over um, Satan and the powers uh, through his uh, life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And so it's a biblical and historic part of atonement doctrine to talk about how Christ has conquered or triumphed over Satan. But um, I you know, I, I can see this trajectory in my own life where I grew up uh, maybe like some evangelical Christians um, with a little bit of an excessive fascination. Even I mentioned in the book reading uh, some Frank Peretti as a kid. Um, and so partly out of embarrassment with some really maybe weird or unbiblical fascinations with the demonic. I think I kind of like a lot of modern people swung the pendulum to uh, maybe an ex an just an embarrassment, right? I'm I'm not a, I wasn't a full on sort of demythologizer, but it's just like let's not talk about that because we don't want things to get weird. We don't want you know uh, we don't want people to think we're sort of just bizarre, you know. And so part for me again, this was an attempt to to try to balance these these pendulum swings by saying no no no. The scriptures speak of atonement as a triumph over Satan and the powers. Now, what does that mean? You know, how do we think through that in a biblical way that avoids both this excessive demythologizing and this excessive fascination that sometimes results in weirdness, but at other times it results in dualism, where Satan is viewed as this basically almost equal power 
to God, and you end up with this Manichaean dualism um, that might be really exciting in your fiction, but it's not a biblical portrayal of either God or um, Satan. So funny. I mean, when you mentioned Frank Peretti in the book, as I said in my email to you, I uh, had this moment of, oh my gosh, (laughs) Uh, it took me years to uh, reform my brain from imagining the spiritual realm in the way that Peretti had. And it reminded me of sort of how Dante has really formed or that his idea of what hell is has really formed our modern understandings without us realizing it. Um, and you mentioned, you know, this dualism problem and immediately I thought of, and if you were in any like evangelicalish church years ago, um, you might have done one of these, uh, where Carmen's the champion, if anybody, (laughs) like where, where Carmen in this long extended epic song, um, it has a da 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 da. It's like a wrestling match, right, between Jesus and Satan on one corner, on one corner. And it was like everybody loved this song. It was like a huge hit at all of his concerts, and it is totally exactly what you just explained. Yeah, it is Christus Victor, but it's Christus Victor as dualism. And speaking of how it connects with lay people, right? Like having this idea still of good and evil, God and Satan, right, as being these kind of equal opposites. And maybe not God, God, but like Jesus and Satan. <laughs> like God dropped down a weight class so that it would be more of a fair fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, so I, I appreciated this section um, on, on getting into this this uh, this arena. Um, and then Going beyond that, on your your final section, I particularly enjoyed your work to unravel some of the problematic assumptions that many of us as theologians have with regard to these models. I more than once had an oh or a oops, I've totally taught that moment. Uh, So thanks for all of those. Uh, Aside from the assumption that these models should be ranked in one way or another, I'm particularly grateful for your section on moral influence, uh, the hands of the mosaic. This perspective has gotten short shrift and is all but dismissed in basically every textbook I've ever read. Um, and even taught, it tends to be like, oh, yeah, this was a contribution. It was a reaction to Anselm. You can understand why he did it, but it's heresy, right? Um, and so can you give our listeners a taste of what you offer there to reintegrate moral influence into the mosaic of atonement? Yeah, well, thanks. I, you know, I, I talk about it as the hands and... I think there are two aspects of moral influence that we need to take seriously. One is what I call the beckoning hand, where and that and you get that in Abelyard, where um, we are drawn because of the love of God displayed in Christ to run to God and to imitate Christ rather than to run away from God. And I think that's a very biblical um, view that we're called to be Christ-like by the power of the Spirit. Right? That doesn't mean we save ourselves, right? It doesn't mean that we don't need the other models. But but actually, I think, you know, Abelyard has been terribly misconstrued in the tradition um, as advocating something he didn't actually advocate, which was exclusive exemplarism, that all you need is moral influence, you know. Um, and he didn't actually claim that. And he, that's been sort of widely, um, I think, shown by by historical scholars. So that's the one part of moral influence that we're beckoned to live like Christ um, through the power of the spirit. And then the second hand that I talk about is what I call the restraining hand um, and this sort of waving off of certain sinful human tendencies, um, again, through the power of the spirit. And that's, that's where I look at this sort of, um, newer approach to Christ's work by a guy by the name of René Girard, um, who's a fascinating, um, idiosyncratic in some ways, literary critic and historian, um, atheist turned Roman Catholic. Um, and his, his view it's often spoken of as, um, a view of mimetic rivalry, rivalry or scapegoating is a version of moral influence, um, by which Christ reveals certain dangerous and violent tendencies that humans have 
um, and waves us away from those tendencies towards scapegoating or rivalry um, and offers us a better um, a better way to live. And so both of those approaches to moral influence, if they're made to stand all alone without the other models, I think are problematic. Um, but both of them have certain um, elements within them that are that are very biblical and very important um, to discussions of atonement. And, and one of the ways you see them come together, you know, speaking of sort of uh, youth group songs from the 90s or the, uh, the early 2000s, is uh, the Romans 16, 19 says, I won't make you uh, act it out if you know it, but that, you know, the God, Paul says that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet, he says to these Roman house church Christians, right? Which is fascinating because it's an allusion all the way back to the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, the crushing of the serpent under the foot, right, of the, the seed of the woman. But he, he doesn't just say that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under Jesus's feet, right? He says that he will crush Satan under your feet, you know? Which means that the transformation, the fidelity, the faithfulness of these fractious Roman Christians is going to be something God uses in the triumph over evil powers, which brings moral influence into the conversation um, of Christus Victor, Um, that the the victory has stages. Um, It has... Uh, we can speak of a victory that takes place on the cross, a victory that takes place in the incarnation and the resurrection, a victory that takes place at the ascension. We can take, we can speak of a victory that takes place in the here and now when uh, Christ's followers um, triumph through the power of the spirit. And then a, a future victory that will take place at the eschaton. And so I think that passage, uh, maybe not the youth group song, but that passage is one of the ways we see uh, the scriptures bringing together different um, models or uh, pictures of atonement um, in ways that are that need to be reclaimed. I think. Yeah. So one more question before speed round. So you address so many theologians in your book, and none of your engagement with them feels rushed. I enjoyed your work with Irenaeus, Abelard, Rene Girard, as you just mentioned, Hans Borsma, and his great book. Um, I have one question about who I don't see in your book. Um, where's Jürgen Moltmann? Because um, you, you reference his student, Wolf, and um, even Jeremy Treat's book, The Crucified King, but then there's not The Crucified God. Um, of course, no one can address everything, right? Um, but Moltmann, but is Moltmann's discourse on solidarity and the influence it had on and continues to have in liberation theologians was a bit conspicuous for me. Um, so especially because his emphasis on God in Christ's suffering with us, and even though he had his own conversation with how that worked with the Trinity and all that, and he kind of worked through that, it seems to be an obvious dialogue partner in various places where you address violence and injustice and a companion to your imagery of an icon of Christ's body in the mosaic. So where's Moltmann? <laughs> He's hovering in the background. Uh, you know, I, I have a mixed view of Moltmann, probably like a lot of people. He's such a, um, he, his interests and his influences are so diverse, right? Um, and I think there's some real beneficial stuff in Moltmann, specifically with solidarity and mm-hmm. Christ's um, identification with the, um, the oppressed uh, in a variety of uh, contexts. Um, I don't, in speaking of the crucified God, I think there's some real problematic elements in Moltmann's view of the cross and in Moltmann's view of the Trinity. And so I suppose the one place he does come up in the book is in looking at the forsakenness on the cross. And the idea, you know, Moltmann's idea that there is this fissure or this break within the Trinity that takes place um, and I reference a friend of mine, Tom McCall, has a nice practical little book called Forsaken, where he explores, okay, in, one, in what sense is Christ forsaken on the cross? Is he utterly forsaken? Is there this breach or break within 
the triune life? And and my answer, kind of like uh, in McCall's book, would be no. That I don't find Moltmann's view um, helpful there. I, I, w- I would argue that it's an example of, um, I don't mean this in an utterly negative sense, but an example of what Nietzsche called strong poetry. It's a very powerful, even moving image, right? Um, but I don't think it's um, accurate in a Trinitarian sense or in a biblical sense. Um, and so my my appropriation of Maltpon, certainly I think I'd probably need to engage with him more in the future, you know, um, and I'd like to do that. But uh, I love some of the helpful things he has to say on solidarity. I don't love um, his view of the forsakenness um, and the 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 cry of Christ on the, the cross and, and how and what that entails for the Trinity. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I, I just was thinking as you, because I do think that you, uh, as with any conversation with the atonement, I think that you've locked yourself into a couple more uh, <laughs> uh, things in the future that you might write on this. And uh, especially thinking about this idea of Christ's body and then us as part of Christ's body, uh, like that particular relationship, I think could be a really interesting future endeavor. And I do think he'd be a good conversation partner for you on that. Um, so I totally get why, um, you know, with that particular conversation, that's like a, a whole nother, like you'd have to do a whole nother chapter <laughs> on like the whole Trinitarian thing. And, you know, your book was, you know, it's not short. So I get it. Um, all right. Speed round time. Everyone's favorite section. You ready? I'm ready. Are you a morning or a night person? Uh, morning. Good. We are of the same mind. Yeah, I go to bed about uh, 9 o'clock p.m. And so, yeah, morning person. If you were an animal, what would you be and why? Oh, man. Um, an animal. Let's go. Can it, can it be a mythical creature or an actual animal? Uh, I'll allow mythical. Uh Let's do a um, a hippogriff. <laughs> You're calling back to the how many uh, I have to note for our on script listeners just how many fiction references are in this book. So that leads me to my next question of what is your favorite, uh, your most um, recent work of fiction you read that you just couldn't put down? Oh man, the most recent one. I just read uh, Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian, uh, which is a tough read in some ways, very violent. Um, McCarthy, you know, is um, not the the happiest of writers, but it definitely stuck with me, some of his images and his, even his biblical references. So Cormac McCarthy, um, Blood Meridian. Tea or coffee? Coffee. I've got it right here with me. <laughs> what is the most significant book in theology in the last 50 years? Oh, man. In the last 50 years. Um, you know, probably in terms of influence, coming back to your Moltmann, your Moltmann question, uh, it, it could be the crucified God. Um, and, and, and Moltmann specifically in all of the different movements that kind of take... Um, influence from him, uh, even if, despite my differences, it's a hugely uh, influential and important um, yeah. book um, that would be certainly in the conversation for, you know, in the last uh, however many decades it's been. Best band or musical artist ever. So the first one that pops into your mind. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> um well, I mean, the Beatles come to mind. That's a that's sort of a cliche. <laughs> it's okay to be a cliche. Sometimes we all got to be a cliche at points. Um, your sandwich falls on the floor. No one is looking. Do you eat it? Absolutely. What's one idea in theology you think needs to die? You actually note several in your book, so you might want to take your pick. <laughs> Can I reread my book? Is that okay? <laughs> well, I think one idea that needs to die is I am a Wesleyan theologian, and um, I, I deal a lot with the book in the Moral Influence chapter with the importance of the Spirit in safeguarding against certain problems or weaknesses. Um, and so one of them is uh, Pelagianism and or semi-Pelagianism. 
And so as a Wesleyan theologian, one of my kind of pet peeves is the equation of um, Wesleyan theology with semi-Pelagianism. And I think that's an example sometimes of epithets or, or labels being hurled around by all sides, all different traditions, but without rooting in their historical meaning. Uh, and they just become sort of shame words or smear words. And we see that uh, not just with with regard to semi-Pelagianism, but with in lots of ways. And that this sort of um, hurling of those sorts of careless uh, labels, I think that needs to die both in my own tradition and in in others as well. So you just mentioned the spirit. So and ask now we're done with the speed round now. Now I want to transition to the last couple of questions. So you draw a direct connection between the atonement and the work of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that. Could you speak to that in general and what difference it might make in our preaching and church life? Yeah, it, you know I think it's important to um, when we're speaking of the atonement, we talk about it as the work of Christ, but. Irenaeus has this famous image where he talks about the the two hands of God at work within the world, and the the hand one be, being the Son and the other being the Spirit, and that the hands always work in harmony and conjunction. And so, I think in some cases um, and in some traditions, the Spirit has been left out of the conversation in atonement doctrine. And so there's lots of talk about the Father and the Son, either in good ways or bad ways, but the Spirit's been, to quote Sarah Coakley's language, the the Spirit has been transformed from this powerful brooding dove to what looks more like a shrinking pigeon. Um, (laughs) And so I deal with Coakley in there, because I think she's right, uh, especially in non-charismatic traditions, the Spirit has been um, de-emphasized in ways that really create problems. And so I think we need to, um, we need to emphasize the work of the spirit at all points in uh, the biblical meta narrative and in the divine economy. What difference, I mean, can we, can we just like maybe combine the conversation about what difference it might make in preaching and church life with, the problems that that we see uh, that is posed at the difference between academia and the pulpit, or it doesn't have to just be the pulpit, but any sort of church life with regard to the doctrine of atonement? Well, you know, I think that both the the academy and the church, and specifically if we're talking about the pulpit, they, they need to be informed by one another. Um, and so, um, Unfortunately, they haven't always been, and specifically in my own tradition, you know, I'm part of a tradition that's a revivalistic tradition, um, a tradition that is emphasized, and I think with some benefits, lay preaching, right? Um, you don't have to have a, a an MDiv, right, to be ordained in my tradition. You don't, and so there's some real good things about that. The empowering of not just the sort of educated elite, right? Um, But the danger is, um, the danger is that we, in my own tradition, sometimes don't see the need for um, worship, worshiping God with our minds, uh, you know, as well as with our hearts and our hands. And um, and so I'm I'm a big advocate for um, careful thinking, informing the pulpit, but also trying to find ways to express theological ideas that are not just, you know, needlessly arcane or jargonish. Um, this particular book is an academic work. And so I don't, you know, necessarily uh, attempt that as much in this book, but I guess my answer would be there needs to be uh, in both the pulpit and the academy a recognition that that we need each other and that we're on the same the same team at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm even though your book is academic, I found it to be um I, I your pastoralness <laughs> comes comes out a lot more than maybe some other books I've read on this topic. So um I have no problem with just passing this to any interested 
uh, layperson or pastor that I know. Um, so I'm very grateful for that because you you succeed at giving an introduction, but also doing what I think a lot of times, I mean, pa- you know, pastors and other people who work in churches are busy. Oftentimes they're bivocational or not paid at all, right? Volunteer. So they don't have a ton of time to, you know, construct a sermon, right? Like some churches have entire research divisions for their pastors, right? But most people don't. Uh, but this book, I feel like, is um, it offers. It won't take your entire life in order to understand it. Um, but because it touches on so many different aspects, I think it allows for. Um, some people to really make some connections that otherwise you'd have to read several books to make. Uh, so I, I just want to appreci- appreciate that for a moment. And it's been a real delight to talk to you about this, Josh. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thanks, Amy. I really appreciate you taking the time to to read the book and to talk about it and uh, and to just have, have the conversation. It's It's been fun. So this is your host, Amy Brown-Hughes with OnScript. We've been enjoying a conversation today with Josh McNall, Assistant Professor of Pastoral Theology at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Josh has written The Mosaic of Atonement, an integrated approach to Christ's work, published by Zondervan Academic. You can find a link to his book on our website, onscript.study. Thanks for joining me today, friends. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.